0: Hi there. My name is Roman Dial, and uh, I'm a guest on the Fastest Known podcast, and I'm happy to be here, and you, you probably have never heard of me, but if you've heard of packrafting, uh, well... Uh, I played a role in the packraft revolution, if you will. And if you've heard of uh, adventure racing or wilderness racing, uh, I played a role in that. If you know any, if you even heard of an idea called bikerafting, well, perhaps I was the first bike bikerafter. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I've done a lot of things, other things that you've never heard of. And I, I, welcome, the, I welcome the chance to be here and talk about those. Roman, that's fantastic.
1: We welcome you a great deal. And what you said is completely true. I've heard of you. You are a legend, Roman. So it's really wonderful for me to get a chance to catch up with you. But I bet a lot of younger people have not heard of you. And we're going to find out why in here in just a second. But first, a second introduction, this one from Andrew Skirka. I said, hey, what about uh, Roman on the podcast? And he wrote back instantly. I think, quoting Andrew, anytime we can put a light on Roman, he deserves it. What he did in Alaska for decades is almost entirely overlooked because he did it in Alaska and because activities predated social media and the blogs he went on to say then, he's kind of like you, meaning me, except you have remained at the center of recent trends because of your charm and good looks. Well, actually, he didn't say that. I, I'm sorry, Roman. He didn't say that at all. But he did say that, indeed, you're the man. And I'm looking at your bio, and listeners, definitely got to go to the written show notes here because we're going to get through one-tenth of what Roman did. But let's start What's the Alaska Wilderness Classic, Roman? This is just crazy stuff. And again, people probably don't know anything about this. But you won it four times from 1982 to 2002. So, what is the Alaska Mountain Wilderness Classic?
0: Well, it's an adventure race. Um, it was it's the original free form adventure race uh, in the United States, and it it was sort of uh, the brainchild of a, of a guy, a guide named George Ripley, in Homer, Alaska, in the early 1980s. At about the same time, I was a young climbing punk who uh, had gotten in an argument with his his partners in the Alaska Range, and we had been avalanched off a of face. And I stormed out of the range um, alone, without a map, with just some skis and um, a stove and a bivy sack. And this was in March in the Alaska Range, and I got out pretty quickly. And, uh, and I thought, wow, I, I wonder what the fastest re- way across the Alaska Range might be. And, and by the Alaska Range, I mean this section known as the Hayes Range between two highways. It's about 150 miles. And, it, and Alaska has very few roads if you've, if you've been here. And, and so any time you can go from road to road, it, it makes for a classic trip. And, and back then, the fastest known time from road to road would probably be about three weeks, and uh, nobody was really trying to race across back then. This was in the early 80s. The only sort of long-distance races were uh, triathlons, you know, day-long races is what I'm talking about. But this idea of a race would be, you know, we didn't know how long it would take, 150 miles across wilderness, and I wanted a ski race. This guy George Ripley wanted a foot race across (laughs) the Kenai Peninsula. (laughs) And when I met George, I said, hey, I love the idea of a race race, um, I have the idea for a race too, uh, but a ski race across the Alaska Range. And he said, Well, kid, why don't you come down and do my race and then we'll do yours? <laughs> Okay, just throwing down. I like it. That's fair yeah. enough. And his race was uh, had a he had a great idea. His idea was to start on the northern shore, the 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 at Tidewater. The idea he had. He was kind of a dreamer. George Ripley was, and he said he wanted all of us to start with our toes in Tidewater, um, <laughs> yeah. in Hope, Alaska. And then we would race to Homer, Alaska, on the other side of the Kenai Peninsula, and the rules were simple. Everything we needed, we had to carry with us. There, we could use no roads. We could use no pack animals. We could have no food drops along the way. We, we couldn't have any help from anybody except perhaps another racer. And, uh, and so between Hope and Homer is about 45 miles of trail, and we could take any route we wanted. So we all took off on the 45 miles of trail, did that in one day. So that was day one, carrying a pack. That's an ultra distance, you know, right? 45 miles. And uh, we carried, we had backpacks and there were rivers along the way. And this was in the old days before we knew what a pack raft was. But by the second day, by the second day of this race, we knew that we needed to carry little rafts because the second day we had to swim, <laughs> a big <glacial> river. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're wearing we're our, our backpacks. Back.
1: So so we're noting that of course there's a famous river crossing at the Western States 100 which you know att- attracts some notoriety but swimming a glacial runoff river in Alaska is a little bit different.
0: Yep, it was the second day of the race and we'd camped at the shore of the race and uh, and the river you know, I don't I don't know how deep the river was. It was over my head. <laughs> and uh and we didn't have PFDs. We didn't we did. We had some safety personnel. And they had a rope. And and my my unofficial partner, the guy that I hooked up with on this route, um, during the race, he swam first and he tied into the rope, but the rope twisted around his his feet and he almost drowned. And it, and if it wasn't for a guy who was old back then, um, but who was probably younger than I am now. His name was Dick Griffith, and he had an inflatable vinyl raft that he pulled out of his, his pack, and he'd blown it up, and he paddled out and pretty much saved Manzer's life, the The guy who swam and got his legs tied up in the rope. And after that, we all decided that we wanted to carry uh, carry these inflatable rafts. So that race took a week for for us to finish. And then after that, you know, we sped up. We had better rafts in fact that's the the word pack raft we we pretty much pack rafting the verb to pack raft and to go pack rafting we that race invented it me and Dave Manzer and Uh,
1: uh, is this the Kenai Peninsula race or the Wilderness Classic
0: race it's the Wilderness Classic and the Wilderness Classic it moved around so it would go in one place for three years oh and, and it's been going on since 1982 so it's almost 40 years now and it it it, it covers the same start and finish, but you get to go any way you want, you know, because the wilderness is so big, you know, you can stay off of roads and trails because there aren't any, and you have to find some best route. And wow. so, it it's moved all around the state. It's been on the Kenai Peninsula. It's crossed the Wrangles. Um, Andrew Skirka came up and he ran the one in the eastern Alaska range and, you know, kicked everybody's butt. It, it was an amazing, and he trained for that pretty much by hiking to the start, you know, from the Kenai. He did hope to Homer and back, and then he walked up pretty much to the start. And, <laughs> uh, and, and then he just walked all over us. And it was amazing. It was really amazing to see him do that. Excellent, The
1: Alaska wilderness, mountain wilderness classic. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And people, you got to go and look at uh, Roman's bio here, because that's your, just your racing experience. You, uh, you founded this and the Alaska Wilderness Ski Classic, the I Did a Bike, and you also took part in the second ever Eco Challenge, which is in British Columbia, where your team got second. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is very interesting. So I hope people are picking up on this. i want to come back to what you just said. Would you say that you and your friends
0: basically invented pack rafting as we know it? I, you know, I don't, uh, people, your, your listeners may find me to be an arrogant, (laughs) but, and, but no, I, my friends, I, I, let me see. I, I can point to the guy who invented it or who showed it to me. His name was Dick Griffith and he paddled across a river that I had to swim and I was 21 years old and I'm a quick learner. And I, I, you
1: said, screw
0: this. (laughs) Yeah. And, (laughs) um, and I, I bought a raft and then I found an even better raft that was made out of nylon and, uh, and I used that one, and everybody switched to that one, and and basically pack rafting stayed. You know, it developed through the Wilderness Classic, and then a few of us started doing wilderness trips. You know, by that was 1982. By 1986, you know, I was using the pack raft across the Brooks Range. My wife and I spent a month walking across Gates of the Arctic National Park using a pack raft to float and cross rivers. The two of us in one four pound raft, and then um, and then I guess in the 90s. Um, Alpaca Raft uh, got started um, because maybe, maybe it was actually in the eighties. In the well, in the nineties, this uh, young Thor Tingey, who's the president of Alpaca Raft now, young Thor Tingey saw an article that came out in National Geographic about a, a bicycle trip that um, me and my friends did. We rode mountain bikes from the Canadian border to Lake Clark through the wilderness, so no roads. You know, the only place we rode a road rode on a road was going through Denali National Park where they wouldn't let us take our bikes off the road. So, we went 800 miles. We rode on glaciers and game trails and gravel bars. And this this kid, uh, Thor Tingey, he was in his 20s or teens. And he saw the article and he wanted to do, you know, a pack rafting trip. So, he contacted me and Carl Tobin and we gave him some advice. And he did a pack rafting trip and then he did another one in the Brooks Range when he was in college and then he decided he needed a better pack raft and he asked his mom to make a pack raft and that's how alpaca raft got started
1: right well the pack rafts were terrible they were basically pool toys and so alpaca did a good job of upgrading it and giving
0: it that upturned bow a little more flotation well you know what I'll tell you what it was the sherpa you know you know they make those sn- they made those snowshoes and the sherpa snowshoes that company actually made a pack raft that was just as good as um like an alpaca honestly it had almost exactly the same fabric it was just as durable but they were impossible to find they didn't they quit making them after a few years they were very difficult to find so everybody got crappy vinyl rafts at Kmart or they got a super tiny two and a half pound pack raft that was you know would would tear with a whisper and it was meant for for a single person to take into uh an an alpine lake you know in california sierras or the the washington cascades why are you referring to
1: the the supai brand
0: well this is pre-supai it would be it, it looks a lot like a supai but it was it was called a uh a Curtis Designs. It was made by the mm. Curtis Brothers, probably in the 70s or 80s. Like I oh. bought one and it came in a shoe box, literally. I mean, like, <laughs> it, it, would, it would fit in here. If you really worked at it, you could get it into this sort of Kleenex box. I mean, that's how tiny it was. And it was miserable to paddle. I mean, I would rather swim in a dry suit than paddle that thing across a glacial river. But the alpaca raft um, really is a good boat. It's an amazing boat. And what what's really happened, and, and I'm not like, I don't work for alpaca. I've had some difficult times now and then with alpaca, but they make a whole selection of boats for all different kinds of things. And once Thor became the president, they started putting zippers on the boat so you could pack stuff inside the boat to make it more stable and keep all your things dry. And by a zipper, I mean the tubes, the air tubes have a zipper. So if you open the zipper, all the air comes out of the tubes. (laughs) And then you can put all your gear inside, zip it up. It keeps the center of gravity really low. Like when Skurka did his you know, remarkable trip around Alaska. Skurka did in six months what it took me 30 years to do. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs) Let's hit the pause button here
1: for a second because as I was expecting, Roman, this is incredible. This is fantastic. You're catching our listeners up on the history of some remarkable sub-sports. Let's call it that, right? And I love the Alaska Mountain Wilderness Classic, which is start here, In there, however you get there is up to you. Goodbye, see ya. Hope it goes well. That's, you know, this makes, you know, a hundred mile trail race race look like a 10K around Central Park. (laughs) (laughs) And then the pack rafting, I like this origination. Because as you said, Skirka did what he called the Alaska Yukon Expedition. And pack rafting is key because you come to the fjord you can there walk, you know, eight miles up through willows and brush, and then eight miles back down around the fjord, or you can get in the packraft and just paddle across it. Yep. So, that was, you got that going. And I'm also noting here that you had, in 2015, the first permitted packraft on the full Grand Canyon. Now, that's where I've used packrafts. See, Roman... Unlike you, I'm a total wimp. I'm not going to go to jump and swim across any Alaska River, but I've done a fair amount of pack rafting in Canyonlands, right? The Colorado River, the Green River, where, you know, it's kind of fun. Uh, You know, I know this is a difficult concept for the Alaskan (laughs) to understand, but it's kind of nice. It's sort of warm. It's sunny. You're, you're, you're bypassing all sorts of cliff bands, but tell us about uh, the Grand Canyon pack raft trip.
0: Sure. The Grand Canyon, uh, you know, I, I like everybody, you know, I, I've been to the Grand Canyon a few times. I think every, every decade I go there, you know, I hiked down to the bottom when I was 12 and back up. And then as a, um, and then I guess my wife and I went there and hiked across it, uh, when we were about 20 years old. And then in my thirties, I was into kind of a, a, uh, Oh, an outlaw stage, I had sort of a libertarian view on things, living in Fairbanks, Alaska for a while when I was young. And in my 20s, I mean, in my 30s, um, I decided that I wanted to uh, we decided, me and some friends, we decided that we wanted to ride mountain bikes across the Grand Canyon. And we rode our mountain bikes you know, down to, this is illegal. I hope the statute of limitations has passed, but we rode our mountain bikes down to the river and loaded them up on these early pack rafts, not an alpaca, but a pre-alpaca. And these boats were good enough that three of us each put our bicycles on a four pound raft each of us had a four pound raft and we rafted about 75 miles down the grand canyon to diamond creek and took out and then rode our bikes back up oh you looped it it was no it was just a crossing we started in uh on the border of uh utah and arizona near saint george and we rode down whitmore wash and popped into the creek into the creek, into the river, and rafted down. And we portaged some rapids, but we ran a bunch of them with our bikes on our boats. No spray decks. We had um, wetsuits. It was before we had dry suits. And then, um, and then, so, and then, in my forties, uh, we got the first permit for the Grand Canyon to take a pack raft. And they didn't want to give it to me, but I, bit it, I made a big stink about it, and people weighed in on it, and we got a permit. I said, you know, I got this permit, and I said, look. I've got my permit, but I don't want to start at, uh, you know, at Lee's Ferry, and I don't want to take out at Diamond Creek. I want to start at uh, Hermit and take out at Havasu, and I don't want a big boat. I want to. I'm going to bring a little pack raft. And the first email I got back was, uh, "You can't do it. You've got to start at Lee's Ferry. You got to end at Diamond Creek." And pack rafts never have been and never will be allowed in the Grand Canyon. And I, well, that was like thrown down the gauntlet. I'm like, uh-uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't see anywhere in the regulations because I'm a professor. You know, I got a <laughs> PhD from Stanford, you know, and I, you know, I'm going to do my research. And, and so I was like, well, no, taking a- on the Park Service. I mean, you're a
1: smart man. You're a math and biology professor. I should note this in Anchorage at Alaska Pacific University. But still, to take on the Park Service bureaucracy, Roman, that's next
0: level stuff. It was. And I was fortunate because I had some support from other people. It wasn't just me, you know, like, to be honest with you, I, I haven't really, like, if you look on my bio, you know, I'm, I always come in second place, all the things that I've come <laughs> up with, you know, those are things I've done with other people. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I've just been fortunate in my life to be around people who can do amazing things. And, uh, and so I had some support, we got our permit, we did that trip, we hiked down to have a hike down to Hermit, ran Hermit, you know ran crystal ran every rapid from hermit down to havasu wait 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 you ran crystal in your pack raft well you can sneak it pretty easily we didn't uh-huh. run through the meat of it but people uh-huh. do they run through the meat of it all the time now but on that trip we had we had you know boats that aren't as good now they had like a short uh, a short stern so that you could easily up back end you know flip over backwards and we had all of our gear on the front of the bow but by by 2015 when i was in my 50s um four of us went down the grand canyon did the whole thing from lee's ferry to diamond creek the whole thing with just pack rafts with all of our stuff our our poop can all of our food you know uh the 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 blanket that you put down to have a fire a little stand to hold that blanket off you know to hold the fire off the ground we had everything in our pack rafts and by then the pack rafts had zippers and they had really nice whitewater decks they had we had um Thigh straps we could eskimo roll them you know you so you could eskimo roll a pack raft mhm yeah we started wow. doing that in 2008 i think no, 2000 and, no 2009 we started rolling pack rafts in 2009 mm-hmm. um so but now it's done routinely now i mean there you should see what people do like all the not all but a lot of the test pieces in the sierras like upper cherry creek middle fork of the of the kern um Those are all getting run in pack rafts now that are, they look like inflatable kayaks, but they only weigh, you know, eight or nine or 10 pounds. And um, so they're super easy to portage and they're actually a much higher performance boat than an IK. An IK is a dog. You know, an IK, (laughs) you know, an IK is like, they should just, they should go extinct right about now, you know, because the pack raft is so much better, you know. Well, you can boff it. I mean, you're in those tight,
1: super tight creeks with the big drops. You can boff a pack raft and boffing
0: I mean you can bounce it off a rock or you well, can boof it right off of a waterfall. You know, the boof was the sound that a kayak makes when you sail off a, a waterfall. You go off a waterfall and it goes boof when you hit. And yeah, you can, because you've got thigh straps and the boats are really light and they're so well designed yeah you can boof them you know and uh it's amazing what you can do in a pack rafting the whole whitewater thing with pack rafting it's kind of gotten away from its roots you know like yes and you know i and i i i'll be the first to admit that you know some of my friends and i were the ones who really pushed whitewater and and i loved running whitewater and i'm old now i'm 60 years old and my testosterone buzz is all dried up you know i don't <laughs> i don't even want a hit of adrenaline anymore you know I, I in fact i'm i'm probably more woman than i am man at this point and so i uh you know i I don't need to run whitewater. And I've really gotten back to kind of what Andrew Skurka did in the Brooks Range. You know, like I, I wanted to go to the Brooks Range and hike and float easy rivers and then hike and float easy rivers. And, and it's just nice to get off my feet. And, and I'm, I've am i gotten back to the roots of pack rafting at this point. Good call. I appreciate that transition. That's very interesting because what sounds
1: like it happened there is technically they started imitating kayaks. You know, the pack raft was designed to pack your gear and do, you know, maybe class one to class two and just go from point A to point B. But then it became a whitewater, almost a playboat, right? So the designs change. You couldn't use that for doing the long trips and vice versa. Just like with skis, same thing happened with skis, same thing happens with bikes. But I appreciate that, Roman. You've gone back to your roots. It's yeah. nice to
0: be outdoors oh, I love being outdoors. I love nature. And, and you know, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a scientist. If you'd asked me when I was nine years old, well, Roman, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would have said, I want to be a scientist. And I was very interested in nature and science until, uh, until puberty arrived. And then I got interested in girls and adventure. And that kind of stuck with me for a while. And now, you know, I'm getting back to being very interested in, in science and nature. And, uh, and the pack raft, you know, to be honest with you, the, taking the pack rafts um, into uh, whitewater really helped advance them because actually the long stern and the and the bow make them better in flat water too because they track better, you know, mm. they track better. And then the idea of having a spray skirt when you're running whitewater, that kept the water out and it just keeps you warmer and drier. It's just all the things that, that pushed it in the whitewater direction helped. It's sort of like, to be honest with you, all the stuff that, You know, people like you doing long trail runs and developing lightweight packs for, um, you know, ultra distance running. Well, that's all trickled down to hiking too. I mean, like we don't, because ultra runners have shown you can run a hundred miles in a pair of lightweight shoes, people hike, you know, the Appalachian Trail in a pair of lightweight shoes. So I feel that a lot of times the extreme end of sports kind of trickles down to the non-extreme end of sports and and actually helps it all out. That's brilliant. I appreciate that. And thank you for correcting me on the whitewater
1: rafts being better for tracking on a a downriver type run. My pack raft, which I must confess is in the ultra minimalist category, weighs 24 ounces. So it's, it's a pool toy, right? And so if you're out there Unless you're pretty good, you're, you're literally going to spin around in circles like you're on an inner tube. And so I appreciate that long stern. That way, if you hit a little wave train, you're not going to
0: backflip it. So it's just a little more weight to carry. So as long as you're good with the weight, it's okay. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. The weight. And you know, the weight. That's one of the things that I'd like to talk about just for a minute is the Wilderness Classic really um, drove home to me uh, how important weight weight is. And and you know, people get into racing especially adventure racing think weight is all there is well no there's time is also important and the only reason weight's important is because it reduces your time but you can futz around with the lightest weight stuff and that will kill your time in a race so you there's a trade-off but um but i became very interested in weight when i was doing the wilderness classic in my early 20s and i was you know studying math i was uh, doing mathematical modeling and i and i would you know i i tracked my data. And I realized that for every pound on my back, I would go one mile less per day. And so, I kind of ended up realizing, you know, um, what I needed to carry. And at one point, I developed a model that I wanted to use to predict how far I could go carrying all my stuff with no food drops anywhere. So, like, load yourself up and go, like an airplane how far can an airplane fly? So, you know, if you fill the airplane up with too much fuel, it can't take off. So, but it's got a lot of fuel. If it could fly, it could go a long ways, but it can't get off the ground. If it has no fuel in it, well, I guess it could get off the ground. If it just has an ounce, just enough to get off the ground, but it can't go very far. So food is sort of the same way. And I came up with a model and I predicted that I could go you know, 600 miles. And, um, oh, really? 600 yeah. miles. So that means water from natural sources, but all the food on your back. Yep. Right. Yep. Water from natural sources and no pack raft. Okay. And, um, and then another interest in, of, of mine is wilderness. And about the same time, I, I started looking around for the wildest places in America, the places that are farthest from any roads. And, and most everybody, I'm sure all your listeners know that the, the, the wildest place, like in the East is like in the Everglades, or maybe it's in the, or it's, maybe it's in the Dismal Swamp, you know, someplace like that. And then in the West, it's, it's the thoroughfare region of Yellowstone in in Northwestern Wyoming. But in Alaska, it's, it's in this area called the NPRA, uh, Naval, or uh, that's not called the NPRA, National Petroleum Reserve of Alaska. And I found a place there using a GIS, I found a place there that was 120 miles from the nearest road or village. And so, um, I decided that I wanted to try to walk there, you know, with fair means, meaning carry everything. And that's in a straight line distance. And so, we walked there, not from the nearest village, but from a distant village, and then walked through there. And and it started off with three of us, me, uh, my friend Jason Geck, and some somebody that some of you uh, may have heard, um, Ryan Jordan. And and we had all, not we, but Ryan and I had kind of met online because I i said, I was looking at his, you know, back in the days when it was just uh, like an internet discussion board. I said, hey, I see you you, you got it. backpacking light. I like that idea. I have this crazy idea that I want to try to walk as far as I can carrying all my own food and gear. And and he, he I said, would you, and I, I was kind of tongue in cheek. Hey, would, how would you like to do that? He goes, yeah, I want to do that. And so he he was super helpful. He got all this really good gear together, um, and and then the three of us left from Kivalina and started Kivalina's on the coast of Alaska, up in the Arctic, and we headed west. and We we didn't carry fuel. We we burned wood along the way. There's no trees, but there's willow. Willow. And uh, we had no pack rafts. So we had to swim rivers and there's no trails. So, we had to stumble over tussocks and walk on ridgelines. But we ended up going, well, actually, Ryan Jordan, he twisted his ankle and had to fly out after about a week. And then um Jason Geck, he missed his wife. And so, about 70 miles from the end, he wasn't married yet. It was his girlfriend and and he hadn't talked to her and, and she missed him. And he he decided to fly out when we walked through one village. So we were 70 miles from the road and he, he, he flew out then. And so I walked to the road. I I walked the last 70 miles in like 35 hours, you know, um, and I camped along the way. And then, uh, so anyway, we went, or I went 625 miles in 25 days. And I started with a, I guess it was a 59 pound pack. Um, That's not much. Nope, it's not much. 59 pounds and 45 pounds of it, I think. It's been a while. That was back in 2006. It was when I was 45. That was back in 2006. And I think it was, I had 45 pounds of food. I remember that trip. Ryan Jordan at Backpacking Light wrote it up. He was really crowing about it. And you were the only one who finished it. Right. Yeah. And he he did. He crowed about it in a big way. And I I usually don't like to trumpet my intentions because, you know, not that I'm a religious man, but I do believe that, you know, the more that you trumpet, often the, the, you know, the farther you fall. (laughs) And and so I didn't really want to trumpet it myself. Um, But I remember, you know, he kind of tried to drum up some interest in it and and one of the things he had pre pre trip was, you know, what are you doing to train? And I I put down what I tr- did for training and and somebody criticized me about it as if, well, wow, that guy's not going to make it very far. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh Ryan's a good man. He's super experienced. Of course, Montana. Montana is and no joke, but Alaska is Alaska, and you are Mr. Alaska, Roman. I think uh, don't underestimate Roman Dial in Alaska or maybe anywhere else. That's a good story. Uh, we could note that you have heard of the, another person who tried to see how far he could go uh, self-supported, and that would be the founder of Golight. And I'm sure Andrew Skirka told you the story about Dimitri Kupin is trying to walk the
0: entire A.T., with all of his food on his back. Well, I didn't hear about that. That would be hard to do because that's 2,000 miles. I think my limit is about 750. It's hard to walk on a trail though. Trails are painful. You know, you're kind of (laughs) stuck on a trail. You can only go one place, you know, and usually they're hard packed. And they're, they're hard on your body, whereas when you're <laughs> off trail, you have a lot more choices of where to go. Like in Alaska, I don't – like Montana, I think, is way harder off trail because you have to walk through the woods where the trees have fallen. Forests are, are tough. Jungles are tough. But a tundra it can it, – after a while, you know, if you've been up here long enough, you kind of learn – you learn what to avoid and where to go that's good. And um, I have very tender feet. You know, like I'm, I'm kind of, kind of a wimpy – guy at heart. And oh, we, so, we can tell.
1: We, we've got that picture. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs>
1: well, Roma, we do, if you're the wimpy guy, we don't, not sure if we want to meet the hard men. That, uh, <laughs> well, here's something that you started to tell me when we first started having this conversation, the fastest known podcast, FKTs, and you mentioned you had a few OKTs, which is, of course, a classic word. We sometimes use that, only known time. But then you pulled one out of the hat that I had never heard before. And you just described a few of them. So tell us about LKTs. Like lo- lonely lonely known times? Lonely yeah. known times. This is a new terminology for people to uh, adopt. And, and Roman Dial is hereby credited with the invention of the LKT term.
0: Yeah, the LKT. I, my feeling about the LKT is it's something that you do and nobody really cares about. <laughs> <laughs> There you go, there
1: you go. I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Right, that's right. That's that's uh, the legend. You know, and pe- people say. So, Buzz, uh, I've heard you're the, the, the local legend. What does that mean? That means I probably did something a long time ago, but no one can remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you, one. Roman. uh We went through. Of course, you had its climbing background, which we're not going to talk about because that's. That's this whole other conversation itself. Your racing background here, pack rafting. You mentioned bicycling. You've done these monster bike traverses. But here's something that caught my eye that I had no idea that you had done, which is canopy trekking. What? So you've basically got another subsport that is like only you do this? Is it like a true OKT and LKT that only you do canopy trekking?
0: Well, you know, for a long time, yes. And then, um, and then there was some, some a, a pair of guys, and I, I don't remember their names. And I'm, I think they were in Oregon, but I, I can't be sure. And they made a little film about a really neat trip that they had done. But let me just sort of back up and, um, and say that back when I was working on my PhD, I worked in a tropical rainforest canopy in the Caribbean, and I was there by myself all day collecting data On this experiment. And sometimes uh, when the rains would come, and I'd have to hunker down, because when you're up in a tree and it rains, it gets really cold. And I would hunker down and I would wait for the rain to pass. and, And I'd look down the valley and I'd think, wow, you know what would be really neat? It would be so neat to go from tree to tree without coming down and just traverse all the way down the valley. And
1: well, I, of course, Tarzan has done this, but.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but us, the rest of us, we're mere mortals, haven't been able to do it yet. And uh, and and the the people, the arborists, people who work in trees, they have methods for doing what they call um, tree tree transfers, where they can move from one tree to the other. And typically, what it involves is um, they kind of swing, they they get up high in a tree, and then they can kind of they put the rope up high and then they go down low and then they have a lot of pendulum and they can kind of swing over and grab it. Or they can do a short transfer where they'll throw a rope over a limb in a nearby tree and use a pole saw to reach over and grab the rope and pull it over and then they could kind of traverse over. So I had this crazy idea and I went back to school and another canopy scientist um, who was working in Oregon heard about this. And, you know, about maybe 10 years later, um, we got together and made it happen and um and we went to California, where he lived. He was a he is a professor in um, California at Humboldt State. And we went down there, and he had some uh, students who came up with this idea of using a crossbow. So when they down in California, they climb the big redwoods, they often have crossbows that they use to shoot an arrow up into the lowest limb, and then they hoist like a parachute cord up and then they pull their climbing rope up and they jumar up and then they take arborist rope and they toss it over limbs and haul themselves up the tree to the top.
1: It's sort, the very- of like, uh, sort of like sort of like hanging a bear
0: bag, but times three. <laughs> yeah, right. It is. It's like hanging a bear bag, except you're the bear bag <laughs> and, you, and you hang yourself all the way to the top. And by the time you get to the top, you're climbing hand over hand. And so um, one of his, one of his students, you know, um, came up with this crazy idea that you could take a pistol grip, a pistol grip um, crossbow and it would shoot a little arrow with these recurved tines on it, like a an arrow with some like coat hangers that were, pu- you know, snipped wires that pushed backwards kind of like a you know batman like batman and so we used it and we went up into we climbed this this redwood tree 300 feet off the ground we threw a rope uh, not a rope but a a throw bag with parachute cord into another 300 foot tree nearby we took the pistol grip hand uh pistol grip crossbow and shot at it and shot at and shot until we finally got it and that and you shoot the bow i mean you shoot the the arrow And the arrow has these recurved tines on it. It has some fishing line on it. And then you reel it back and you get the, cord and then you pull a climbing rope over and then you do a tyrolean traverse across and so we did it once between two trees and then we went to the sequoias and we went on a three-day canopy trek in these big sequoias where we had these hammocks that we slept in up in the top of the trees and we carried all of our food and and then we would string these lines between trees and pull all of our stuff across we went for three days and then
1: well, well, um, let's pause so this is three
0: days tree to tree without touching the ground yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and not using any help from the ground. So it's kind of the same idea of, of what we've been talking about, self-contained, self-supported. It's just, it's another landscape. You know what I mean? It's not the mountains. It's not the tundra. It's the forest canopy. And you so- were tarz- it, You were Tarzaning. Yeah, but it's so slow. It's pretty boring. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you sit around a lot. It sounds really cool, but um, but you know, we need the new generation of it. I, this is like big wall climbing. This is like warren harding you know spending a month to go up el cap and nowadays we've got um you know alex honnold zipping up it in two hours you know what i mean <laughs> and so right right you could free solo trees I see. Uh, it'll happen i think that it'll happen you know I, i'm working on a science fiction story i don't want to get too far into it because somebody might steal my idea and make a really great um movie but i think in the future people will um will be able to squirrel suit, you know, like they do off of cliffs. They're going to squirrel suit. They're going to climb up trees and squirrel suit from tree to tree. But that, that'll be, you know, that's like, you know, that's like if you and me were, you know, um, Warren Harding and, and Royal Robbins talking about what people are going to do on El Cap in the future. And if we would said, Oh, they're going to climb it without ropes and then jump off with a parachute, we would have said, no, no way. way. <laughs>
1: no way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, steel, I mean, you, you've like, you, you go back to the time with pitons and just bang the piton in. And of course then you had to bang it back out. So it took forever. And, and your rack, your gear rack weighed, you know, 80 pounds yeah interesting i like that's a good comparison so we are the dinosaurs but still uh three days in the canopy i think well i think standard here
0: well no the longest one we did was in australia where we climbed these big you know almost 300 foot they get to be 300 feet but we were in a forest where they weren't quite 300 feet but these really tall eucalyptus called mountain ash and there i got a i got a grant from national geographic to go down there and we, there we went down and we went up for a week, but after five days, and this is carrying all of our food. We even had like poop tubes like they have on El Cap because we were in a protected watershed where all the water uh, is is caught and then funneled down to, uh, you know, in the watershed. It goes to Melbourne, you know, it was their water supply. So we weren't allowed to to just poop out of the trees. We had to carry it in these big tubes like you would on El Cap. And we had ledges. And we were up there for five days and then a big windstorm hit and stuff started falling down and these trees fall down. And so, we rappelled out and then came back and finished the last, you know, the last few trees of that. Tr- we call them canopy treks. And um, what yeah, it would was be a exciting. linear
1: distance, for example, in that five days in the eucalyptus. What would be a linear distance?
0: It's not very far. It's it's, it's kind of embarrassing. I You know, I I want to say I'd have to look it up that, that was back in 2000 so it's like 20 years 20 years ago and um, I think I think it's like like a thousand feet you know like it's I don't remember if it was like 700 maybe 700 meters you know like it was it's not very far because here's what we had to do you know it takes a lot of time we had to map out the. we had a map we mapped out where all the trees were on the ground and so when we were up in the trees we had this map of the trees bases that we used to sort of figure out how far it was from tree to tree to kind of figure out where to go because it's really empty up there you know and and then you have to hurl a this throwback you got to throw it <laughs> you know, you'd climb up high in one tree and then you'd throw your throw bag over a limb in another tree, like below you. And then you'd have to rappel down and then shoot at it for a long time you know, with your <laughs> crossbow. And we'd, it, we'd, we'd graduated to like big crossbows. We had like big crossbows. What we really needed was a longbow. But um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's really slow. It's really slow. But some guys about Maybe five years ago or 10 years ago, they, they might've won, um, you know, at the Banff Mountain Film Festival, that their, their film might've won, um, you know, something. And they went, I think they went a whole kilometer. Um, and I don't know how long it took them. And I, but I do know that their trees weren't very big. It looked super fun. Like like the guys I was with, they only wanted to do this in the world's biggest trees. They didn't want to see how far they could go. They wanted just to get as high as they could go. They were all about climbing tall. And I wanted to go far, but you know, I was I was going along. I was a team player. Yeah, let's go big. And uh and these guys in Oregon, I they kind of went around in a bunch of oak trees that were about you know, 50 feet tall, maybe. So they had like, they were really, they had a lot of limbs on them and they were close by. So the bigger a tree is, the farther apart it is, the smaller the trees, the closer they are. And the closer they are, the easier you can get from tree to tree. But gotcha. climbing trees is super fun. So I, I think you could go a long ways, but it just hasn't caught on. There's some other things I'm interested in that haven't caught on. or You know, people are just sort of sniffing around. And The world's a big place. There's a lot to do. And uh, the people will get to this stuff. All right. You
1: have the OKTs and some LKTs as well. So when the listeners are trying to wonder what to do, they should go on the written show notes and look at your bio here, your climbing trips. Racing, pack rafting, some of the cycle trips you've done, the canopy trekking, and we're going to leave alone at this point skiing and skating. This is skiing, you know, 100 miles and 150 miles, and some of your off trail traverses because your wisdom here is going to come into play. Because I'm going to ask you about your book and the experience that led up to your recent book, Roman, which is a little bit different. I think you had this incredible life of adventure while also being a college professor, an educated person, while also being a family man. And I think in the book, this all kind of came together. The book's called The Adventurer's Son. So briefly tell us the context for this
0: story. Well, sure. You know, I, um, I, I've had a lot of, uh, you know, I still have, I have Outdoor partners that I've known for 30 and 40 years that we still do things together, and I was really excited. I always wanted to be a parent. I was really excited to, um, to be a parent as a young man, and uh, I wanted my son to uh, – who went by Cody, Cody Roman – and uh his first name was Cody. and when he was six, we were on a, a long trip out in the Aleutian Islands. and he he decided to start going by his middle name, Roman. So we walked sixty miles across this Aleutian island, and that kind of started our our wilderness trips. and of course, we'd done stuff from like as, as old as you know he, as soon as I could hold him, I was doing stuff with him, you know and uh, and I always wanted him to be like a lifelong companion of mine and do different things, and I wanted him to enjoy himself. And I didn't want him to suffer too much, but I wanted him to learn what challenge and and uh, difficulty, how, how that can build your character. And so anyway, he, um, you know, uh, when he was 27, he took a pause from his own graduate education and he took off to Costa Rica. Um, he actually was heading for South America for a six months or or more for a year-long trip. And he kept in touch. He wrote us emails every couple weeks, told us what he was doing and uh, described some of his adventures. And and he described one adventure that he was heading off on, and then he, he didn't come back. And I never heard from him. And so um, pretty much as soon as I realized he was overdue, um, cause I'd been on my own trip and when I came back, I realized he was overdue. And so I went to Costa Rica to look for him and it took a couple of years to find him. And, um, and he, you know, he was, you know, I didn't find him, but I was somebody, I, I was there and, um, he was dead. He'd been dead for probably two years. And, um, and that whole process of looking for him and like every free moment going down to try to find my son, I, uh you know, I kept a notebook at first of people that I talked to and then what they said and then what I thought and then what I felt. And before I knew it, I'd kind of filled a bunch of notebooks. And um, and a lot of what I'd written about was, you know, um, dealing with what was my role in the disappearance of my son. And and I know that, you know, you, you and I, Buzz, we're, we're old and I know that you're a family man and you're lucky enough to be a, grand, a grandfather. And I'm, I really admire not only the the neat entrepreneurial life you've had and all the amazing adventures you've done. But the fact that you've, you, you have four grandkids. I mean, that's that, to me, that's a real success. And, um, and I wanted grandkids from my son that I could share the outdoors with. And, um, and so when my son disappeared, I really wondered, well, what was my role in that? And, and I also realized, and this is something I'm speaking to the young people out there um, who do dangerous sports and it's easy to get caught up in dangerous sports because it's so exciting, uh, but the f- fact of the matter is, is if you die doing a dangerous sport, you're not gonna, you're you're gonna be dead. Nothing. Th- I mean, unless you're a really serious believer in the afterlife, um, you're, you're gone. You're gone, and you're not gonna feel anything. But those of us who are left um, are gonna are gonna hurt really bad. And the more that we love you, the more it's gonna hurt us. And uh, and I guess I had. And I'm embarrassed to even admit it, but I'd never realized that until I was you know in my fifties that wow, I've been doing all this crazy selfish stuff, and I could have died and 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 my loved ones they're the ones who would hurt the most and and so you know, I was already getting kind of old, and my uh, my you know testosterone was drying up, and I was slowing down, but this was a real eye opener and and so. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not that I'm trying to proselytize to anybody, but I would hope because extreme sports are pretty darn extreme today, and uh, and I just would I would want people to realize that um, that, that there are others out there who are going to hurt if, if something happens to you.
1: Very, very well said, Roman. Thank you for that. Because if anyone should know this, it is you. You had, had a lifetime of extreme sports. You wanted to share it with your son, Cody. Then Cody died in Corcovado National Park, Costa Rica. And suddenly you're going, well, wait a minute. That's a, that's a good story. And in the show notes, people can find a link to purchase Roman's book on this topic to read more about it. But I appreciate that perspective. Because as you said, the extreme sports are getting more extreme. Um, We're recording this uh, on February 16th, and two more people have just died in avalanches in Montana. And I would note the beginners don't die in avalanches. Do you notice that? The experienced people die in avalanches. So they actually know what they're getting into, and they're doing it anyway. So I think your words of wisdom were well said, Roman. Thanks, Buzz. I look forward to seeing you in person sometime. I think we're going to still be around and we'll be out walking down this this leafy forest path enjoying the birds and the bees. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, I hope so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Buzz.